point for our 11 o'clock service. We're so thankful to have you all with us. No, uh, some of you might be going, and uh, the same with me, I was thinking about it as well, that you've never seen me not up here helping to be a part of the worship while while being here in town. And uh, I realized in, for the first time in eight years that was this Sunday was the first time I wasn't up here. And it was an encouraging time to be able to just be out here with you all just singing God's praises. I love hearing everybody sing every Sunday, uh, whether they're new songs, whether they're old songs, just God's people gathering together, uh, praising him, worshiping him, and then and turning our hearts towards him for uh, what he's going to do through his word this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah uh, for the last seven weeks, and now this is our eighth sermon in the book of Nehemiah, and I don't know about you, but God has really just used this uh, book in my life recently. Just, uh, I love how God takes his word and, and uses it for um, his glory and just the things that, the applications that there are that we can take. Uh, it's been especially um, enjoyable for me to be going through it with our teen group, uh, the questions, and also filling in at different small groups every once in a while. Just had a great time with the Monday small group this past week, just uh, discussing uh, the sermon from Sunday and just all the many truths and applications that were found there. But just to bring us back up to speed, if this is uh, maybe your first time with us or maybe someone joining us on the live stream is their first time as well, just want to bring us up to speed of where we're at in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah uh, was the cupbearer to the king and uh, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and he brought word of the wall being in disrepair, the city being in, in uh, disrepair, and just all the things that are being said about said about the, the Jews and the, the, the city, uh, all the disparaging remarks from the people of the land. And so Nehemiah's heart is, is broken about this, and he, he goes and he goes to the king, asks for permission to lead a, a group of Jews back so they can rebuild the wall uh, there in Jerusalem. And the king, he does indeed allow him to go ahead and return. And not only does he allow him to return, but he sends him with money and supplies and all sorts of things in order to accomplish this task. So Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and over the course of the next 52 days, he helps to organize the rebuilding of the wall. They accomplish this, not as not only accomplishing the rebuild of the wall, but also all the different things that we've learned about the past seven weeks, uh, dealing with the rich Jews who were taking advantage of the less fortunate Jews, uh, dealing with the opposition from all the, the neighboring countries and rival leaders. And so we get to Nehemiah 7, and Nehemiah has just finished numbering the people, and he's reestablishing the order of the priests and the Levites uh, because his next order of business is to not just to physically rebuild the wall, but now it's to rebuild uh, the relationship between the people of God and God himself. I made a joke uh, on Monday night's group uh, where if maybe Nehemiah was a part of the 53rd building uh, construction zone, maybe we'd be done with that in a short amount of time instead of waiting uh, years for it to be accomplished. But So Nehemiah, we can see he gets the job done, and now he's ready to turn God's people back to him. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, 
all the people gathered together as one man in the area in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So you hear the name Ezra, and you might, if you have uh, read your Bible through at any point in time, you would know that Ezra is the book that comes before Nehemiah, and that is actually who we're talking about here. Ezra um, was a priest of the order of Levi, and he uh, was at the same time as Nehemiah, and actually, when the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written, most Bible scholars believe that they were actually one complete book that were split into two parts at a later date. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with a lot of the similar themes, uh, and they have one, uh, one common goal, and that goal is to return the Jews to their homeland, to rebuild the homes, the cities, and the places of worship, and then to restore the covenant worship of God back to his people. And in Ezra, um, it's actually interesting. Ezra isn't mentioned until the second half of the book, but the beginning of Ezra, Zerubbabel is led uh, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and he's actually sent by King Cyrus of Persia. Um, and what's amazing is when, when uh, going through uh, books of the Bible, the sermon series, we hear some of these names mentioned. It's actually Cyrus, we discussed him in the book of Daniel as um, there was prophecies leading to him being a part of restoring the Jews to their homeland. And um, Zerubbabel went back uh, 50 years before Ezra came back, and he was sent by Cyrus. Um, and the prophecy that Isaiah actually has about Cyrus mentions him by name, not just infers that he is the, the one that this uh, prophecy was regarding, but it actually names Cyrus, and, he's, and, and the prophecy talks about how God has given him power, and he's given him the ability to be the conquering king of all these nations, but that he's been set up for this time to restore the people of Israel back to their homeland, and not just to restore them to their homeland, but to specifically build the temple and to uh, not do it for a personal gain, but to do it because he had become a believer in the God of heaven himself. Then 50 years later, Ezra is sent by the order of King Artaxerxes to reinstate the temple worship of God. And we find this account in Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 28, where we see Artaxerxes writes up a letter and he sends it with Ezra to take back with him to Jerusalem to give him the ability and the authority to have to lead the Jews in their temple worship. To get, and he also gave them money in order to be able to purchase the animals needed for the sacrifices. And it's really amazing that God, how God just worked in the hearts of these heathen kings, first in Cyrus but now also in Artaxerxes twice as he sends Ezra back, and then he also sends Nehemiah back later, uh, 13 years later. So we might be wondering why here in Nehemiah then that, you know, if these kings have already done what God asked them to do and they've given the people of God resources, they've given them the abilities, they've given them the authority, then 
why in Nehemiah are things still the same way they were back before then? Well, Ezra, when he comes back to Jerusalem, he is made aware of a situation that has happened. The Jews of the return from exile that came back with Zerubbabel have fallen back into their old habits of sin, uh, and they've actually gotten back into their old ways of worshiping heathen gods and marrying uh, those of pagan um, ancestry. And what has happened is they've totally gone against God, and they're not even interested in being a part of this rebuild. And so Ezra, he's, he's just upset about this, and he goes to God, and he asks God for instruction, and he comes to this conclusion uh, that he is going to call all the offending parties of these relationships, all the men of Israel that had chosen to live in this sin, to come to Jerusalem, and they have three days to get there, or otherwise they lose all their possessions, they lose their inheritances, they'd be kicked out of the Jewish uh, family. And so they gather all these men together, and there's so many that gather that uh, Ezra informs them all that they're going to send them back to their home cities, that he's going to give them someone to go and meet with, a priest there in their own city, and that they are to immediately annul their marriages to these pagan people, and they're to go back to honoring and worshiping God according to the law of Moses. So, and he does this because there's so many involved in this situation that it would have taken them so long that it would have created, you know, catastrophic uh, failure in bringing their crops in and and shows just how far God's people had gone from him again. And this is really one of the most wild passages that we come across in scripture where it might be considered one of those difficult or hard passages where those who are anti-Christian, those who maybe are trying to find ways to point out, you know, things that maybe are hypocritical that Christians believe in, is like, well, why would God instruct people to go ahead and divorce their their wives when we know that in the law of Moses it also says that, you know, divorce is not something that God is interested in his people people doing. And the reality is that we may not ever know the real answer for why this is why he chose to do this. But Ezra, you know, he was passionate and he was very, um, he was very much wanting the people of God to return to their purity because his purpose for doing this in his mind is to return the Jewish bloodline back to purity for the Messianic Davidic line to come where Jesus would come from. Um, so just a couple of little notes I want to I want to make sure it was something that if somebody were to ask us these questions be like, well, how do I answer this? The reality is God has a purpose for everything that happens and we may never know why because the end of the book of Ezra really it comes to, it's to a standstill. There's no real resolution that comes because the next book that we get is Nehemiah and things are 13 years later just the same, almost worse than it was before. But God has a plan and no matter what happens, no matter how we try to mess things up, he's got a purpose, he's got a plan, and he will be glorified because of it. It's also important to know that God didn't hate the heathen peoples, because the reality is if you go back in the Davidic line, you can actually find uh, heathens who had chosen to follow God that were 
grafted into the line, I, I think specifically of Ruth and of Rahab, as they were used by God to bring about our Savior into the world. So this isn't just saying that God hates those who are heathens. It's just these people are living in outright rebellion. And in Ezra's opinion, this is the only way he can get their attention and try to straighten things out. But it is important as Christians for us to take from this passage to understand that as a believer, we have, a, we have an important calling by God to be close to him. And the reality is that if a lost person and a saved person are married, that it's very difficult to have a God-honoring marriage. Uh, and anybody who thinks that they're above that can really go back and look at the book of uh, Ecclesiastes where Solomon has gotten to the end of himself and he's realized that everything he's done really seems meaningless. And it's because he's gone so far from God with marrying these heathen wives. He's gotten... He's the wisest man in all the world, and he's made the same uh, mistakes and gone from God as we can. But there is a reminder that God can bring restoration to any story, though, even if we make a bad decision. Paul talks about in the New Testament that a lost spouse can be won to Christ by a believing spouse, and the children can be won to, to Christ. It is not in vain that you are with the person you are with. God can bring redemption to our story. So I just wanted to make sure that with this difficult passage that someone could really point out these and say, well, maybe God isn't who we think he is. The reality is God is who he has been all along. And God can use our mistakes and still bring his glory out of it. So after that background, the history lesson of who Ezra is and what he's dealt with to this point, now Ezra is being called on by Nehemiah to read the word of God to the people because he is, he is the chief of the, the scribes and um, he's in charge of the priests and the Levites. And so there's been 50,000 Jews gathered here uh, and they've gathered here at the water gate in Jerusalem. Continuing on in verse number two. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men women, and all who could listen with understanding. In the area in front of the water gate, he read aloud, from sunrise until midday to the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So we see 50,000 people gather with one purpose in mind, and that's to hear the word of God read. And we see that not only have they gathered, but there's been careful preparation to make sure that God's word is central to this meeting. Verses, verse 4 says, Ezra the scribe stood on a raised wood platform, which they had made for this purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On the right hand and on his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people because he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood up. So we see even here in this passage some really neat parallels to how Western culture has actually adopted things from Scripture in our own worship services. They built a wooden platform, and they raised it up for the reading of God's Word. They gathered all the those who were a part of 
preaching the word, and they had them gather on the platform. Uh, there's, I, don't, I know when growing up, there were several churches that I visited where all the pastors were seated on the platform. You, you know, they, we, we get a lot of these parallels from here in the book of Nehemiah. We also see how people's um, worship they're in, in gathering in a large gathering um, is affected by the scripture. We see in verse 6 that Ezra blessed the Lord as the great God and all the people responded, amen, amen, by lifting up their hands as they bowed their heads. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We, we see the people, you know, focusing on, on God in this moment and we see that they, they're gathered around his word and here even now they're, they're standing in to hear and receive God's word. They're responding to what they're hearing with amen and with lifted hands and with prayerful hearts. And they're focused on here in this moment what God's word has to say for them. Verse, verses 7 and 8, we see there are several more people who are involved in this situation of reading the word. Then, then Jeshua and Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while they stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So all these Jews have gathered in this one place, and you have Ezra, as well as all these men mentioned in the last several verses, gathered and ready to explain the word of God to the people. What good is what God has to say if there's no understanding? Now, the beautiful thing about being a New Testament Christian is the fact that we know that Jesus lives in us, that his spirit abides in us. And so there, the Bible is able to be understood by each and every one of us. It is not of a private interpretation. We don't need one person to be able to read the Bible and tell us what it means. We have the ability to be able to read the Bible and know what God says for ourselves. But that doesn't mean that there isn't wisdom in seeking after others who have a passion for God's word, who have spent time studying and reading, and, and they, they have maybe a high intellect and are able to understand cultural things that we might not be able to. Um, not all of us are called to get up and preach. I know that we have, are blessed with a pastor who's got the ability to understand God's word and share it, but even he studies and understands things from other people's perspectives as well. As, as all of us have the ability to grow, we should take those opportunities. And so here in these verses, we see that God's word, not only is it the focal point, but the understanding of it is important. And we're going to find out that later in the chapter that this passage that's being explained to them, that the Jews have been ignoring it or misunderstanding it since the time of Joshua. And that they, that the priests and the Levites have a very important job to explain this to them. Now, these Jews were of a generation that had not experienced temple worship. They were in exile for probably all of their, all of their lives. And they had really no public ability to understand what what the gathering was. So this was an exciting time for them, and yet all they really knew was what their parents had passed on, their grandparents, maybe some small meetings that Jews had dared to have in, in exile. And we can see that what 
they had learned either was ignored or maybe wasn't even taught to them in the first place because here they are just living as the way they want until Nehemiah gathers this assembly. An important implication can be made here for generational responsibility. We see that Jews, these Jews here, are suffering the consequences of the sins of their fathers, their ancestors. Take it all the way back to the ones who have called in 1 Samuel for Samuel to give them a king instead of having God as their king. The reason they're in this boat in the first place is the fact that they asked for a king, and now these kings have led them into captivity through sinful acts and God needing to judge them and bring them back to himself. We can also see that we can also see that the back in Abraham's day that Abraham had the ability to and he had the word from God that he would have descendants by Sarah that would outnumber the stars. And yet he took his wife's word over God's word and he had relations with Sarah's servant, Hagar, who then birthed Ishmael. And Ishmael now would grow up to be the father of many nations that have caused the Jews so much conflict, even in the Bible, all the way until now. It's our responsibility as Christian parents, as Christian grandparents, as friends, as extended family, as Anyone we come in contact with, we have a responsibility to teach those people the word of God. That his promises are true. His word can be trusted. That his laws, they're not burdensome, but they're actually freedom from what the world, what the devil has in store that he's trying to enslave you with. Some of us are raised, we're raised in families where there is no concept of a life without God. You always had Sunday morning was a must. You always had your Bible that you could choose to read from. You had parents who taught you good morals from the Word of God. And that is God's grace. We should be thankful for that. Let's not get comfortable with that reality. Let's strengthen our relationship with Christ. Continue to grow and to teach it to our families, to those around us faithfully. And some of us in here, maybe we grew up and we're the first ones to choose to follow Christ in our families. And the reality is that's God's grace and mercy too. He's given you the opportunity to break that generational curse of leaving God out of the picture and receiving him. And we have a huge responsibility to pass it on to our families. That doesn't mean that we're not going to fail going forward. Actually, we're going to continue to fail until the end of time, until Jesus comes back for us. And we're going we're gonna to make liars out of ourselves. We're going to become hypocrites uh, more often than we care to admit. We're going to even sometimes choose things that are obviously like in rebellion against God. And it's going to cause problems. But there is still hope. Verse 9, Nehemiah, the magistrate, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were teaching, the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Stop mourning and weeping. This was because all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So why were these Jews weeping and crying about what was happening in the word of God? Well, we'll get to that in verse 17. But the reality is, what has been said to them, they realize they haven't been doing it. And they've 
they're remorseful, they're sorrowful over their sin, and, and they're, they're experiencing some genuine heart change in this moment. Sometimes I think that we get so comfortable even uh, being Christians that we can really just become desensitized to God's word. We can come and we can hear God's word preached. We can, we can gather with other Christians and we can just play the part. And there's no real genuine um, attention to what God is saying. I know that sometimes it's uh, when you come to church, maybe you've come and you've had a bad week and you're, and you're desperate to hear what God has to say. And sometimes you've had a good week and you're, you're okay with what's going on and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm here because this is what I'm supposed to do. What a blessing it is to have God's word powerfully speak to our lives, to step in and point out the things that are going, that are going wrong in our lives, the things that we're choosing that are not of him, and to cause us to, cause us to seek after him more. We see that in verses 10 and 11 that Nehemiah and Ezra are trying to gain the control of the people. They, they tell them that there's time later to go ahead and be repentant. And they should be sorrowful for their sin. But the reality is what they've been read to in the law is some, a, a joyous occasion that they're to celebrate. Verses 10 and 11 say, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet drink, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So we see here that Nehemiah and Ezra and all the Levites are encouraging the people to, to be joyful in God, to, to have their, their joy found in their Savior. Contrary to the way that some paint God, God is not interested in living with his thumb on us trying to make us miserable with every decision we make. The reality is he does have a plan. His glory will be had, but he wants us to have joy. He is a good father who lavishes it, uh, those of us who are believers with his goodness, with his pleasure, with protection. Psalm 84:11 says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give favor and glory for no good thing will he withhold from the one who walks uprightly. Another form of love that God uses is correction. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. There is a consequence, and it's not for pain or displeasure, but it's rather for an ultimate goal of restoration. God is seeking to restore his people to himself, and the beautiful thing is they are repentant, but he's giving them the ability to have joy in him that the understanding is that they can't find happiness in their circumstances. They're actually not really, even though they're on a mountaintop experience right now, they've just finished rebuilding their wall, and they're all gathered there, and they're back in their homeland. A lot of the rest of their families are still back in Persia and are scattered, and they're, they're still suffering the consequences of sin. But yet, they have the ability to now choose to follow their God. God is beginning this work of restoration and it's in the hearts of his people. He wants their love and their devotion to him. And he wants our love, our devotion. 
we might be going through situations in our lives where we are finding ourselves lacking joy, lacking happiness. Maybe it's time that we take a look at what we're doing with our lives and find out, are we living according to the way God would have us to live? You know, check our behavior against scripture and just ask God to point us in the right direction. We can have joy when we make the right decisions. It doesn't mean that they're going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be any consequences for past sin. But the reality is there's so much more joy following after this. The last verses of the chapter now describe the festivities uh, that the people were commanded to take part in uh, over the next seven days. Verses 13 and 14 say, On the second day, the chiefs of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They found written in the law where the Lord had commanded by Moses that he, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. So I'm not going to go and preach someone else's sermon, but I am going to point you to go to our YouTube channel. We have a, a very uh, beloved guest preacher that comes and visits, a friend of ours, Eric Getch. And actually, it was really amazing as I was studying this passage for this morning, my mind was like, we're actually talking about the exact same thing he just talked about four months ago. So I encourage you to type in Eric Getch, Cross Point Baptist Church, Davenport, Iowa, and it'll pop up because it popped up on my TV as soon as I did it. Um, and the, what a powerful sermon he used, uh, God used to uh, just break down this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and what it, all the different things that went into it, all the very, all the implications of it, the, the past, the present, and the future uh, that Jesus came and fulfilled the meaning of this, of this gathering. And another really neat thing that I want to share with y'all is, well, as I was studying for this sermon, I actually looked up Feast of Tabernacles for myself so I could, you know, get a few little pointers of, of what was going on. And it's actually happening right now. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is started Friday night, the 29th, and it's going to finish Friday the 5th. So I just, I love it when God takes his word and really just kind of makes it come alive to us as we, as we're going through it. You know, um, Pastor Joel picked the book of Nehemiah. God gave him the, the, the nudge to pick this book as it was a timely book for us. And not only did we go through it at this time, but we're actually coming to the chapter on the same week that they're actually celebrating this over in Israel. So I just thought that was a, a really neat thing. So this Feast of Tabernacles was an incredible seven-day feast where all this wonderful food was, was uh, being eaten, all the, the, the best drinks were brought out. Um, they, they were sharing with those who had less than themselves. And really, it was just a time for them to reflect on the goodness of God in the past uh, when he brought them out of Egypt and as they wandered through the desert for 40 years. Um, and then they're present because the the focus on the water gate is that they were to gather there and celebrate what God, how God provided them in the present as the time of rain um, in Israel is a very, very, uh, they have two seasons, hot and hotter, and one of them happens to have a little bit of moisture in it, and then there's no more rain after that. So this time of focusing on God's provision through rain, they have this water um, ritual that they 
that they performed each and every day that showed their need for God. So this entire, the entire feast is focused on this reminder of who God was, who he is, and who he would become in the future to them through the Messiah, Jesus, when he comes to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And now they're able to celebrate this with this newfound freedom from the understanding of the word of God. In verse 17, like I said earlier, all the congregation who had returned from captivity made booths. So they made these makeshift houses and they built them on their roofs. They built them in the uh, temple area and they even built them by the gate of Ephraim. They were allowed to build these temporary booths out of these sticks and it was a reminder for that week of how the children of Israel lived in the wilderness for 40 years and how God provided for them each and every day all their needs. And they hadn't done this since Joshua was their leader, and that was several hundred years earlier. So they had been ignoring what God had said. And now we've re uh, reached verse 18, the end of the chapter, and we started the book, or the chapter, with a gathering of people, and they're centered around the Word of God. And now they're going to gather again around the Word of God every single day. It says, verse 18, day by day, so all seven days of the feast, from the first day to the last, he or Ezra read the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly as required. So they gather all week, celebrating what God has done, eating the best food, drinking the best drinks, uh, sharing with those in need, um, and just rejoicing in who God was to them. And now they're coming back to that, that moment of remorse again. Chapter 9 is all about them confessing and forsaking their sins, the ones that they are sorrowful over, the ones that they've been committing over the past several hundred years. And I think that's an important reminder that our entire life should be focused on the Word of God. I'm not saying that we should become those who sit at a table 24-7, neglecting all of our duties, reading the Word of God, because that's actually against what God would tell us to do in His Word. But we should focus our lives and our hearts on the Word of God, meditate on His, His Word daily, read it daily, talk to God daily, meet with Him. He's got something for each and every one of us. So as we close this morning, I have a couple of statements and applications I want to, to make, and then, we're, and then we're done this morning. First, the Word of God must be a priority. So Nehemiah has brought about a lot of change, as we've seen throughout um, the sermon series so far. He's, he's helped rebuild a wall. He's helped stop injustice. He's helped um, defend his people from their enemies. And a lot of these things, they're, they're, they seem to be externals, but Nehemiah, he's being led by God. This is, this is his spiritual work. He, is, he feels led to, to help his people. But he knows that he can't continue to help them become better. He needs to point them at the source himself. They need, they need to point to the word of God. Nehemiah was wise enough that there, no amount of planning or convincing delegating or working was going to cause this. It had to be the Word of God. And I'm reminded how many times I go through my day thinking of 
my way first and then consulting God later. Um, taking God's word for granted um, as, as a Christian, like I have his spirit living in me and I have the ability to read and to understand his word. And yet I'm sometimes content with the way I've figured it out. The things that I want to do, I'm going to do. Sometimes we listen to other things, other voices outside. There's so many churches gathered this morning and so many good churches gathered around God's word, but then there's other places of so-called worship that are gathering around an idea, a self-help model of, well, follow these steps and you'll live a better life. Uh, you'll be happy. You'll, you'll be able to have all you need. When the reality is the word of God is all we need. What God has for us is better than anything that we can accomplish in this world. But he loves us enough that he's going to give us our necessary daily food, like, just like he did for his people in the wilderness. God's given us the ability and the privilege of gathering weekly to gather uh, and worship him. And there's so many benefits to gathering as a church family. There's the ability to be encouraged uh, by, by building our friendships, to have maybe, maybe someone in the church is able to meet our needs. And, uh, but the reality is the point of coming to church isn't a gathering for those things. Although those things can be accomplished, God's word and the centrality of it to our, to our lives is the most important reason why we would gather. We're supposed to gather to come into the presence of God not only can we do that on our own, but the, the Bible says that where there are two or three gathered in his name, that we can know that he is here with us. The second statement I have for us this morning is, the ability to recognize and repent of sin is a blessing. So, I don't know about you, but when I have, when I'm doing something, at home for my wife. I might have my own way of doing it, but if I don't know what she needs and what she wants, if I don't know, if she's not giving me, telling me her needs and her wants, then she might go neglected without my, without me trying to uh, meet her needs. But when she shares with me what I can do to help her, that opens my eyes to really the, her needs. The same thing is true with God. We, he gives us the ability to know what is wrong with us and what our true needs are. We might have these ideas of what we need on the outside, these surface things that can make us better. When the reality is, he knows that the root cause of all things in our life for negative is our sinful nature. And he's given us the ability to recognize that and to choose a better way. The The people here in, in Nehemiah are filled with sorrow, and they should be full of sorrow because they're hearing the word preached to them, and they're doing, they're, they've not been doing these things, and it, it, an overwhelming conviction comes over them. Have you ever been there where you're, you just open your, your Bible in the morning, and you're reading, and just God just speaks to you, and you're just like overwhelmed with this sensation of I'm not who I should be in this moment. And what a blessing it is to, to hear 
God, you know, through his spirit and his word, just giving us an encouragement that he's all we need. We can repent and we can choose him. In chapter 8, we see that these people have been that been brought to their knees over the uh, over these over these choices that they've made and now they're going to choose a better way. And then lastly, there is joy in worshiping Jesus. So Nehemiah reminds the people that the joy of the Lord is their strength in verse 10. And it didn't matter how badly they had been living. They had recognized that they were sinful and that God had forgiven them. They didn't need to live with this shame anymore. They could now celebrate this week of this feast knowing that they had a God who was faithful to them in the past, who is faithful to them now, and he was going to continue to be faithful to them even though they would continue to fail. The same is true for each and every one of us this morning. It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter the choices we're going to make in the future. God loves each and every one of us, and he sent his son to, to fulfill this prophecy, to be the, the satisfaction of our, of our hearts, of our, of our needs. And as we go through life, we're going to face these situations where joy just seems to escape us. But the reality is if our hearts and our minds are focused on him, then he is our joy. He is our strength. And I don't know um, how many of you have ever experienced this. I'm a very emotional person, and so music speaks to me in a, in a very interesting way sometimes. And there will be times where I'm just belting out a song, and all of a sudden, like, I can't stop crying. The reality is, like, as I'm worshiping Jesus, like, there is just no greater joy in being in his presence, in, in gathering with his people, in singing his praises. Uh, the, the same kind of joy can't be found in, you know, doing my hobby or accomplishing my goals or, uh, you know, going to my favorite restaurant, even though Mexican never makes me unhappy. Um, but Jesus is our joy. And it's important that as we go through our lives that we stay focused on him, that we would worship him, that we would thank him for the ability to be forgiven of our sins, to repent of our sins. Uh, those are things that we can't take for granted. And really, he does this work through us when his word is open. So I encourage each and every one of you this morning that maybe, maybe you don't read your Bible daily. I know sometimes it can be a struggle to get up in the morning and face the day and, oh, I'm running late. I hit the snooze button when, one too many times. It's okay. There's this thing called the Bible app. And so such a blessing to me as I'm driving to work to just play God's word over my radio on my way to work because I know I can't do it without him. And, and meditating on his word as I go throughout the day, it, I, can, I can face so many more things with a much better heart attitude and the ability to reach others for Christ with, when I'm focused on him myself. Let's go ahead and close in the word of God.